Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome to the surface of the sun. Uh, it's kind of hot in here. Some of you complained about how cold it was last week, so we thought we'd punish you and teach you what it really feels like. We want to give you a feel for what the early Christians felt like, you know, when they were in ancient Palestine. It is a little warm this morning. We're, uh, we're working on it. Bear with us. Uh, if I pass out, just revive me. Grab Dave. Um, we are in the uh, halfway point of our two-month-long journey through a book of the Bible known as the Acts of the Apostles, or Acts for short. And it's a book that tells the story of the wild and unexpected revolution that eventually came to be known as Christianity. Uh, if you haven't done so yet, make sure you're on our reading plan. We're all reading through the book of Acts together as a church. You just text in the word Acts <clears throat> to 97000, and you get a text message every week that lets you know what we're reading together as a church. So make sure that you do that. Last week, uh, Dave preached from Acts 15, and he talked to us about one of the most important moments in the history of Christianity, but also one of the most important moments in the history of humanity, one of the most important moments in the history of the world. Led by the Holy Spirit, the church makes this monumental decision to recognize that the love and the forgiveness of God is a gift that has been offered to all people and not just the Jewish people. All right, led by the Holy Spirit, the church recognizes that the doors to the kingdom of God have been opened wide and every single person has been welcomed in. You can say amen to that. That's good news. There's a lot of Gentiles in the house this morning, so that's very, very, very good news. And so these walls that have existed forever, they're falling down as the revolution continues to grow and to spread. And as you might expect, not everybody is happy about this. Because when you start messing with the way things are and have always been, you usually end up getting yourself into some kind of trouble. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn to Acts 17. And as we do, I will set the scene for us. The apostles and elders have made this huge decision to say Gentiles, you know, they're welcomed into the kingdom of God. And then Paul decides to embark on his second missionary journey. It's a journey where he was going to go and visit the churches he had established in his first missionary journey in order to encourage them and give them some guidance. So he does that. And then he is led by the Spirit, which should sound familiar in the book of Acts, on a new adventure into some new territory. Okay, so Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. We'll have it up here on the screen for you. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, the religious leaders, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, that's where Paul was staying, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king named Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others that they would get Paul out of town, they then released them. Okay, Acts 17, verses 
one through nine. We've got another painting this week from our friend and uh, graffiti vandal, Stephen Bishop. I think we have a painting. There we go. This week, kind of capturing the, the riot scene that we have on hand here in Acts 17. And so let's start with this, okay? Show of hands, show of hands. Um, any of you ever started a riot before? Yeah, me neither. Uh, the closest I have ever come, in fact, to starting a riot was about a year ago. I think I was preaching, and I mentioned that I thought um, The Greatest Showman was a very overrated movie. <laughs> you all remember, they almost walked out of here. I'm telling you, white people love The Greatest Showman. You cannot <laughs> criticize The Greatest Showman in a room with white people. And so that's the closest <laughs> I have ever come to instigating a riot. Uh, when I think about it, I don't think I've ever even been a part of a riot. I was a part of a few rowdy bachelor parties back in the day, but I do not think they rose to the level of a riot, and so my riot record is pretty clean. And from your show of hands, I can tell that you're all in the same boat. You know, riots are not a typical part of your weekly schedule. You know, you got church on Sunday, small group on Monday, soccer practice on Tuesday, and oh, then we got that riot scheduled for Wednesday. We're gonna have to bump dinner with the yawns because we gotta do that riot. We promised everybody we would do that riot. No. As we've mentioned numerous times throughout the course of this series, people like you and me, you know, we're, we're pretty privileged people, most of us, especially compared to the rest of the world. We're enormously privileged people. And privileged people like you and like me usually are not very interested in things like riots or revolutions. And in this, we find ourselves in a very different situation from our early Christian brothers and sisters because they were constantly getting themselves into trouble and so here in Acts 17, Paul's come to Thessalonica, and as was his custom, he goes to a Jewish synagogue to preach the gospel. He goes there three different times, and we're told that he reasons with them from the scriptures, which means he takes the, the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament, and he explains to them why Jesus the Messiah had to suffer and had to die. Apparently, a large number of people respond, they join the Christian revolution, and this makes some of the Jewish religious leaders very angry, and so here's what they do. Uh, they round up a bunch of rough and, and rowdy people from the crowd, and they uh, essentially instigate this, this riot. They go find Jason, the person who had housed Paul. They drag them before the city authorities, the city council, whose job was to maintain law and order and make sure proper respect and loyalty were being shown to the Roman Empire. So they drag them in, and then they make this enormous accusation against them. All right, let's listen to it again. These men who have upset the entire world have come here too. And they're acting in defiance of the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king named Jesus. Now let's let this, uh, this accusation sink in for a moment. Do you remember how the story of Acts started in Acts chapter 1? I know that's been like five weeks and it's dog ears for most of you, right? So... Do you remember how the story started with these 120 people who were huddled together, anxious and afraid in a room? Do you remember how Jesus left his revolution in the hands of a mostly unlearned group of men and women who had no political or economic power, a group of nobodies who had nothing and made up approximately .000000048% of the population? Remember all that? Not a very promising start to the revolution, right? You would not have put your money on anything coming from these 120 people gathered together, anxious and afraid in a room. And yet here we are, about 20 years later, and these Christians are being accused of what? They're being accused of upsetting the entire world. And the Greek word that is used here is the word anastatosantes. Say it with me, it's fun. 
Anastato Santes. And broadly speaking, it means you're, uh, you're upsetting the status quo. You're messing with the equilibrium in some given place or context. And so when I walk into a room with white people and I criticize the greatest showman, I am Anastato Santes, right? I am upsetting the status quo in the room. I'm upsetting people. But in context here, the word has a more, uh, a more specific political edge to it. Because the early Christians are being accused of what? They're being accused of instigating this rebellion <laughs> that was upsetting the entire world and the empire. And what exactly are the Christians doing to stir up this rebellion against the empire? Well, allegedly they're doing it by claiming that there's another rival king named Jesus. So what do you think? You know, do the, uh, do the accusation stick? Are Paul and the early Christians really guilty of stirring up a rebellion that was upsetting the entire world? So I was reading through the book of Acts again, slowly, kind of in preparation for the series. It had been a while since I'd done that. And I came to this story here in Acts 17, and I remember reading it and thinking to myself, good gosh, like these early Christians are constantly getting themselves into trouble. It seems like every single page, every paragraph, it's somebody getting into trouble. And so I, I do this unofficial survey, right? And I discover that somebody gets arrested, prosecuted, beaten, stoned, killed, almost killed, or incites a mob in 22 out of the 28 chapters of Acts. Somebody gets arrested, prosecuted, stoned, beaten, killed, almost killed, or just starts a riot in 22 out of the 28 chapters of Acts. On every single page, somebody is getting into some kind of enormous trouble. And just for a little bit of frame of reference, all right, here, here are a few chapters in the life of Paul the Apostle. So in Acts 13, the religious leaders incite a mob and chase him out of a city called Pisidian Antioch. In Acts 14, he's moved on to Iconium, where the city leaders concoct a plan to stone him to death, but he learns of it and leaves town. Later in Acts 14, he moves on to a city called Lystra, but his enemies follow him there, incite a mob, stone him, drag him out of the city, thinking he's dead, but he's not dead. He gets up and just keeps preaching. In Acts 16, Paul is arrested, beaten with a rod, thrown into prison, and then finally we reach our story in Acts 17, where he incites a riot in Thessalonica and is accused of upsetting the entire world. So if you're keeping score at home, Right, that's three mobs, a failed assassination, attempt, a stoning, a beating, and a night in prison, all in the span of five chapters. I know. <laughs> it is hot. Is that what you're... It's hot. Nothing's on fire. It's just fog. Um, and the seemingly inevitable conclusion that we're forced to draw from this relentless pattern of civil unrest in the book of Acts is that there was something innately revolutionary about the gospel that pushed the early Christians into constant conflict with the powers that be. There was something innately revolutionary about the gospel that just always pushed the early Christians into conflict with the powers that be. Or to put this another way, the early Christians did not go looking for trouble. But trouble always came looking for them when they did what Jesus said. All of which forces, I think, you and me to ask ourselves a bit of an uncomfortable question, right? And the question is, where did the revolutionary spirit go, man? Like, why did the early Christians constantly get into trouble? And why do we never get into trouble? So I'm like, no, you know, I got a speed ticket the other day, man. You know, no, no. Why do the other Christians always get in trouble for being Christians? And why do we never get 
in trouble for being Christians, for doing what Jesus said. Well, William Cavanaugh, he's a great theologian, smart man, and he wrote a really interesting book called Migrations of the Holy. It's a good title, Migrations of the Holy. And as the title suggests, the book examines the way in which modern culture created a world in which people now go to the state for things they once went to the church. All right, to put this another way, modern culture is a culture where the center of devotion and allegiance has migrated away from the church and toward the state. That's a little bit vague, right? So let's put some flesh and bone on that idea. So in modern Western culture, the church and state have uh, created this division of labor of sorts where the church takes care of people's spiritual needs and then the state takes care of basically everything else. Right? So the church meets people's spiritual needs and then the state meets their physical, emotional, psychological, economic, educational, and any other needs they might have. And, uh, you know, there's been some benefit to this division of labor. I don't have time to go into that this morning, but there's been some benefit. But the enormous downside of it is that as the state has gradually swallowed up control of everything that is not quote-unquote spiritual, people's dependence and allegiance have inevitably migrated away from the church and toward the state. Now, all this became clear to me uh, about a year ago when I went to drop off uh, something for my son at school. He's about three years old at the time. We'd forgotten his backpack, and so I go in to give it to him, and I walk in just as all the kiddos were standing up to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And um, at first, I just had this moment of nostalgia. You know, like I remember being in Miss Weisinger's kindergarten class saying the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, when I was a little kid. And, so it's this kind of sweet, nostalgic moment, but then I have this really unsettling realization. And I thought to myself, you know, my three-year-old boy, he knows the Pledge of Allegiance by heart, but he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer by heart. And I'm watching my, my three-year-old boy is being taught to pledge his allegiance to a flag and to a country, but am I teaching my little boy that Jesus has demanded an allegiance that transcends all earthly allegiances? Now, all that to say, who's doing a better job, you know, creating loyalty and devotion? Is it the church or is it the state? Now, think about it in your own life for a moment. Let's think about it in our own lives. I'd be willing to bet most of us know the Pledge of Allegiance by heart. But do we know the Lord's Prayer by heart? Most of us probably have the Star-Spangled Banner memorized. But do we know the Apostles' Creed? <laughs> do we even know what it is? Do we spend more time watching CNN or Fox News? Or do we spend more time? So epic, so outrageous that it covers the world with wine. I am not making this up, okay? Amos 9, verses 13 through 15. The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps, and the treader of grapes, that is, the one who makes wine, if you're Baptist and you don't know, <clears throat> the one who sows seed. Now the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all of the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land, and they shall never again be plucked up out of the land that I have given to them. One of many examples I could use here. And so in choosing to turn water 
into 150 gallons. Gallons, people, 150 gallons of wine for his first public miracle. Jesus is announcing that God's joyful apocalypse has broken into a sad and watered down world. Enough with the water. It's time to bring in the good stuff. Jesus. So a good spiritual leader will know and love the word of God. Verse 8, um, I love this section right here. Paul gets really sarcastic with him, starting in verse 8, right? He gets really sarcastic. He, uh, he's kind of mocking him a little bit, if you listen to the tone. Because again, they're real proud and arrogant. They think they're rich and strong and mighty, and we're, we've got it all figured out. So here's what Paul says in verse 8. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you're so wise in Christ. We're weak. Oh, but you're so strong. You're held in honor, but we're in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. We, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Well, sign me up, right? Like, that sounds wonderful. Like, who wants to be beaten and spit on and homeless and, you know? Paul's, again, he's just, he's sort of sarcastic and mocking. I'm going, guys, you think you've got everything. You think you're so rich and you're so smart. And here we are, Paul's going, let me tell you what it's like to be like me and Apollos and Cephas and all the Christians in this day and time. It's, it's a lot of sacrifice. It's a lot of sacrifice. Spiritual leaders need to be prepared for sacrifice. This is from Paul, mind you. Paul was a guy that was beaten up repeatedly, shipwrecked, thrown in prison, stoned, left for dead. This is Paul. He, his body bears the scars of sacrifice, and yet the guys in Corinth are like, yeah, I want to be the spiritual leader like Paul. He's like, y'all don't seem to understand what this is about. Spiritual leaders better be prepared for some sacrifice. You know, it's not all just, you know, lovely and wonderful and, you know, grabbing hands and singing kumbaya and, you know, just walking with the... I mean, listen, it, it, it's a life of sacrifice. And so Paul's just trying to remind them, like, guys, y'all are kind of off in your view of what being a spiritual leader really is all about. He's going to quite, honestly, he's kind of like, sometimes my job just stinks. That's kind of what he's saying. It's hard. It's hard. He goes on then in verse 14, and he really talks to him like a father to children. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. I love that. Right after the sarcastic kind of getting onto him, oh, you're so smart. Paul's like, look, I'm not saying this to shame you, right? I'm not saying this to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And he says in verse 16, I urge you then to be imitators of me. Paul was like a spiritual father figure, a spiritual parent figure to these young believers in Corinth. I started thinking about that this week. Like, hopefully you have people like this in your life, right? Think back. Who would that person be for you? Who is that person that was a bit of a spiritual parent figure in your life? I think we need those people in our lives, right? We need spiritual parent figures. We need those people in our lives that'll tell us not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. And hopefully if you have some people like that in your life, you're grateful for them. 
that you don't push them away when they tell you some hard truth because that's what Paul's trying to do for the people of Corinth. He has a love for them. He cares about them. And because he cares about them, he doesn't want to just see them kind of drift off into sin and arrogance and pride. He's trying to write to correct and rebuke them a little bit. And, and the next point that I had written down in this section was that spiritual leaders need to live lives that set an example for others to follow. Paul says, be imitators of me. He says this elsewhere in other letters that he wrote. Philippians 4, he says, the things you have seen and heard and received and saw in me, imitate those things. And I don't know about you, but that's deeply convicting, isn't it? Because I don't know, I don't know how, how, how you think of that. The principle where everybody's misfortunes is allegedly due to some sin that they have committed, right? Paul is not telling us that we need to go around trying to you know, connect the dots between people's sufferings uh, and their misfortunes and sins that we think they've done. I mean, can you imagine how terrible that would be? How insufferable that would be if you were like, hey, uh, man, I'm losing my hearing. It's really terrible. Could you pray for me? And someone were to go, oh, you're losing your hearing. That's awful. I hate to hear that, man. I'm going to pray for you. I will. But what'd you do? What'd you do wrong? You've been, uh, you've been listening to that secular music again. You know that's how hearing loss happens. Or you lost your job. Oh, that's terrible, man. I hate that you lost your job. That breaks my heart that you lost your job. But what'd you do? You know, did you, uh, did you vote for Bernie? You know, that's how you lose your job. What? Your skin is turning orange? That's crazy. You've got the orange epidermis disease. I am so sad to hear that, man. I'm going to pray for you. But what'd you do? Did you, uh, did you vote for Trump? You know, that's how it happens. That's how you get orange skin. Right? You get the idea. That is not... What Paul is endorsing here, and that would be insufferable, it would be a terrible idea, that's not what Paul's saying. Rather, what Paul seems to be implying is that in a more general sense, okay, the disunity of the community as a whole is resulting in divine discipline because God refuses to let the community stay divided. It's like when my little boys are fighting, you know, and I make them both sit in timeout and then hug them out. I discipline them because I refuse to let them stay divided. That's what Paul's talking about here. And a lot more could be said, but that's the big idea. And so then Paul makes two suggestions, two suggestions that Paul believes can heal the church body of this divisiveness that is afflicting her right now. First off, in verse 28, Paul says that before we share in the Lord's Supper, we should examine ourselves to make sure that we're not participating of it unworthily. And that's the word that Paul uses, unworthily. And growing up, uh, I was taught that when Paul says we should examine ourselves, uh, he was calling for this, you know, deep personal introspection where we look down deep inside our souls and make sure that we don't have any secret, unconfessed sin. And, you know, making sure that you don't have secret, unconfessed sin is, is a really great idea. I, I highly recommend it. But it's clearly not what Paul has in mind here. Uh, in fact, there is this sense in which turning Paul's words here into a call for this deep personal introspection only exacerbates the problem because it's finding yet another way for you to make everything all about you. You know, your sin, your secrets, your guilty conscience, you're right standing before God. And so Paul's essentially going, hey, 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 for the love of God, stop making this thing about you. We, you make everything about you. Don't make this about you. This is not about you. This is about us. Okay. Uh, in other words, rather than calling for deep 
personal introspection, a turn inward, Paul is rather calling for communal solidarity. Okay, Paul's not calling for an inward turn. Paul's calling for an outward turn. In essence, Paul says, look, when you gather as a church family, uh, you cannot let yourselves be determined by the world. You can't keep dividing yourselves up into these little segregated clusters of people based upon worldly status. That's not how people who have been determined by the gospel act. And so instead of acting like a tolerant association of friendly but segregated acquaintances, you've got to act like a family because you are, in fact, a family. We have said that a hundred times over the last year. The church is a family, and this is not a metaphor. Okay? So that's Paul's first suggestion. When you get together, examine yourselves as a family and make sure that you're acting like a family when you take the Lord's Supper. And then his second suggestion is this. Okay, This is verse 33. Paul says, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. When you get together to eat, I want you to wait for one another. So the Corinthian church is being plagued by this profound disunity. This disunity is so serious that it has resulted in divine discipline. Okay, God is disciplining their community because the disunity is so serious. And Paul's remedy to this incredibly serious situation is that they should wait for each other? I mean, like, really? That seems like a pretty simplistic solution to a pretty severe and serious problem, if you ask me. So, um, let's try this. Let's have a show of virtual hands. You can use emoji cons if you want. Right? Show of virtual hands. How many of you hate waiting on people? Cameramen all have their hands up too. Yeah, I have a vision right now of hands up all over Bell County. I see that hand, I see that hand. Yes, I, I hate waiting on people too. Uh, the worst is when you go to a restaurant with someone and you've been there like 500 times with them and the waiter comes up and they pretend like they don't know what they want. And you're going, are you serious? There are three items on this menu. We've been here 500 times. You've ordered the same thing 500 times in a row. I know what you're going to order. The waiter knows what you're going to order. Everybody in the restaurant knows what you're going to order except you apparently. I, I hate waiting on people. And the only thing I hate more than waiting on people is being told that I should wait on people. Because when people tell me that I should wait on somebody else, you know, my, my first reaction is usually to go, well, you know, I could do that or they could just speed up. You know, why, why is the burden always upon me to slow down? Why can't everybody else just speed up a little bit? And so I hate waiting. I hate Paul's advice here. It seems ridiculous to me that Paul would say, hey, you should wait for one another and that will fix this problem. But as is usually the case, good old St. Paul is absolutely right. And here is why. Status shapes time. Okay? Status shapes time. What does that mean? Well, that's a fancy way to say that people of, you know, wealth and privilege tend to have more time and more flexible time than people who don't have the same wealth and privilege. And as a result of that, it's very difficult for us to all move through life kind of at the same speed. You know, it's hard for us to get on the same page. It's hard for us to live life in the same time zone. You know, it's almost like we're living in different time zones sometimes. 
But, so says Paul, if we can't gather together, if we can't make the time to be together, then we can't be a family. We just can't. And so notice the simple genius of Paul's solution here. Paul says, look, we've got to learn to wait for each other. Because if we can't wait for each other, then we can't truly be together. And if we can't truly be together, then we can't really be a church. Because here's the deal. You know, uh, we can't magically rid ourselves of all of our disparities and our differences. We can't do that. But we can wait for each other, right? Both literally and metaphorically. And in a fast, impatient world, what could be more fascinating than a community of people who have learned how to wait for each other? What could be more fascinating than a community of people that understands that we, we, are more important than me? Now, i got to tell you, I can't think of anything more fascinating than that, which is why the world doesn't need to see a fast church. You really think the world's going to be impressed by a fast church? we got fast everything. The world's not impressed by that. Now, what the world needs to see is a together church, a church where we have learned to take the time to wait for each other. That's what the world needs to see. And I know that's, um, that's a lot of exhorting. You know, that's a lot of me saying, hey, we need to do this better and that better and that better and that better, and we better do this better. And so I, I want to end with a little bit of encouragement. Uh, because I, uh, you know, we've got a long way to go as a church. We do. But I, I look around, and I've been at Vista for a little over eight years now. I look around our church, and I see the patient work of God everywhere. I do. I see it all the time. Now, I see incredibly wealthy people serving alongside people who don't have homes, people who are living paycheck to paycheck. I, I see it all the time. I see couples who are patiently tending to very difficult marriages who are refusing to throw in the towel. I see an incredibly diverse church family that has by the grace of God, taking the time to worship together this morning. And that makes me very, very grateful. And I hope it makes you grateful too, because it means God is at work here. It means God is at work in our midst. And He's teaching us how to wait for each other. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we live in a world where entropy is natural which is a fancy way to say that we live in a fallen world where we're all naturally pulled away from each other. Uh, we are prone to sequester ourselves into segregated clusters of sameness. And for the most part, God, we don't mean to do it. It's just what naturally happens in a fallen world. But something else has happened. To be specific, Jesus has happened. And because Jesus happened, the church happened. And one of the central practices of our happening is our patience, is our willingness to wait for each other. And so this morning we have slowed down in order to be together, and we receive the gift of the unity that is ours in Jesus. 
And we ask that by your great grace, our lives might be marked by that divine patience that has made all of life possible. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.